Welcome here. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here at SunWest. Glad that you're able to join us both on site and online. Uh, in Tony Campolo's book, The Kingdom of God is a Party, uh, he opens the book by telling a story. Uh, and the story is uh, one where he was traveling from the East Coast to Honolulu to do some uh, for a speaking engagement, and he's, as you can imagine, he was quite jet-lagged when he got to Honolulu, uh, and so his all, he was waking up in the middle of the night because of the nine-hour difference, and so he found himself awake at 3.30 in the morning and was looking for a place to, to have some breakfast and to find a coffee, and so uh, he went and found this, uh, this diner, a restaurant uh, that was open at 3 a.m., uh, and he refers to this place in his book as a greasy spoon, and so you can imagine what kind of place is open at 3 a.m. in the morning, and that's what it was. And so he walks in, and there was uh, coffee, and there was a, some old donuts sitting behind the, the till there, and so he asked for coffee and, and donuts, and it was just him and this large gentleman that was there running the, the show, the owner of the restaurant, and so he was served this coffee and uh, the donut, and so he's sitting there on his own, uh, and then... Uh, shortly after he sits down, this group of eight to nine prostitutes walk into the restaurant and they sit down around him and sit down beside him. So he's in the middle of them and he says, I quite felt like I wasn't in the right uh, space uh, and that I should leave. And the, the conversation he recalls being quite uh, vivid and crude. Uh, but anyways, he's there. Uh, considering leaving, and uh, one of the girls that was sitting right next to him explained to some of her other uh, friends that tomorrow was her birthday uh, party, she was, or her birthday, and she was turning 39. And her friend responded by saying, why are you telling me? Why would I care that tomorrow is your birthday? Do you expect me to throw you a birthday party or something like that? Um, kind of responds to her friend crassly. And her friend says, no, why would I expect you to throw me a birthday party? She said, nobody has ever thrown me a birthday party in my entire life. Why, when I'm 39, would I expect someone to do it now? So Tony, at that moment, got an idea, and he, he, he stayed there and waited until these uh, girls left. And, uh, and then when they left, he says to the guy uh, who's running the restaurant, he, he says, uh, I got an idea. What if you and I... Uh, well, first of all, he asked them, do these girls come in every night? And the owner says, yeah, they come in same time every single night, about 3.30 in the morning after their shifts are done. Uh, they come in, and they all come in together. Uh, and he says, what about the girl that was sitting beside me? He's like, yeah, that's Agnes. Uh, she's in here every night about 3.30 in the morning. So he says, I got this idea. Why don't we throw Agnes a birthday party? And so the owner of the restaurant says, that's a great idea. And he yells to the cook in the back, who is his wife, hey, uh, we're going to throw this birthday party tomorrow. And Tony says, I'll get the decorations and the decor, and I'll do up this place uh, real nice. I'll get a birthday cake. And the owner says, no, you don't have to get a birthday cake. That's my thing. I'll do up the birthday cake. And so Tony took care of everything else. Uh, and so sure enough, the next day they, they come, 2.30 in the morning. Tony comes a little bit early, decorates the restaurant with... Uh, with all the birthday decorations and on cardboard cutouts. He has happy birthday Agnes on the cardboard cutouts. And uh, the, the word must have got out because at, at about 3 a.m., the place was flooded with uh, other prostitutes ready for the birthday party. So it was a packed house. 3.30 a.m., right on the dot, the, the diner door flies open and Agnes and her friends come in. Uh, and Tony had prepped everybody and they screamed, Happy birthday. 
and she didn't know what to do with herself. Uh, Tony recalls that this, this moment that she was barely able to stand because she was so overwhelmed and her friends had to hold her up and they walked her forward and then uh, they started singing Happy Birthday Agnes to her. And so as they're singing Happy Birthday, they're bringing out the birthday cake with, um, for Agnes with the candles on the birthday cake uh, and they, they got to the end of the, the song and Agnes uh, was slow to blow out the candles. She was just taken in the moment. And everyone said, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles. Uh, and she's overwhelmed with emotion. And then, so the owner's like, fine, I'll blow out the candles. He blows out the candles for her. And he says, you got to cut the cake, Agnes. Cut the cake so we can all can eat it. And she says, do you mind if I just take a moment? And he says, well, do whatever you want. It's your cake. You know, you can, you can keep it if you want it. She's like, Really? She's like, is it okay if I take it home? It's like, you can take it home if you want to. It's your cake. She says, I just live down the street. Uh, so she, she takes her cake and walks out of the restaurant uh, and takes her cake home and then was going to come back to her party. And, and so she leaves out the restaurant. Uh, and as the door closes, uh, there's this kind of somber silence in the, in the building. And, and Tony, being a, you know, a, a pastor, um, really doesn't know what to do. So he says, why don't we just pray? Um, and so he, he gives this, this prayer, this blessing over Agnes. He prays for Agnes. Uh, and, uh, and then he, when he finishes praying, this is what he writes down in the books. He says, when I finished, Harry, who's the owner of the restaurant, leaned over the counter and with a trace of hostility in his voice, he said, hey, you never told me you're a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And then Tony says, in one of those moments, just the right, where one, the right words just start to come out, he says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry waited a moment and then almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd join a church like that. If there's a church like that, I'd join a church like that. This morning I want to talk about the power of unreasonable hospitality. Jesus had this open house type of ministry where he entertained and ate with guests that people thought he had no business eating with. Different people that were enemies in other social spheres gathering around Jesus, having a meal with Jesus. He had this open house kind of ministry. And it was not just a one-time thing. This was kind of how he did life. In fact, at SunWest, uh, at different times, we've talked about Jesus' strategy in ministry and how uh, people often had an encounter with Jesus, uh, that he went to the synagogue, which was, for them at that time, was the church gathering, right? And so there, this was the place where there was teaching and understanding and people would learn about God. Uh, and then there was this call for people to live in obedience to what they knew now, and so there was an encounter, there was a teaching and understanding element, and then there was this obedience element. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, which is one of the four books at the beginning of your New Testament that talks about the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, Luke describes three different ways that these encounters look like. Uh, there was healings, where people that had disease or were crippled, were, were healed, and Jesus restored them, and they had this life-changing encounter. There was deliverance, where people were under the oppression from demonic spirits, and Jesus would deliver them from that oppression. 
And then there was the third type of encounter, which was hospitality, where people would encounter Jesus in these social settings that were boundary-breaking type of settings that made people ask questions about who he is and what he was doing here and what was going on. Why would he be keeping this type of company? And in fact, if you look at kind of the strategy, we could say that Jesus was helping people have a place to belong. And out of that place of belonging, uh, there was a belief that was changed about who God was and there was an invitation to behave in a new way. His purpose was to help people belong, to believe and to behave. Whether it was healing, deliverance, or hospitality, Jesus showed in these encounters with Jesus that they belonged, that they were seen, that they were loved, that their life had meaning, that their life had purpose. No matter what other people thought of them, Jesus saw a different purpose for which they were created. People belonged often before they believed and behaved differently. And I don't think much has changed today. I think often people belong or feel a sense of belonging before they decide that they're going to change something they believe or change the way that they're living and change their behavior. All of us, probably when we think of our own lives and our own transformations, can find a moment where we belonged somewhere, and out of that sense of belonging, it changed the trajectory of our life and how we behaved and what we believed. We see this over and over again in the life of Jesus. I want to look at one particular moment this morning in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 19. It's the story of Zacchaeus. And this is what it reads. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So Jesus was intending to pass through. This means that uh, Jericho was not his destination. He was not planning on staying in Jericho. His itinerary uh, meant that he was going to go somewhere else. And so the whole story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19 is an interruption to Zacchaeus' plans, to his his itinerary. And we see that Jesus, even when he's interrupted, is willing to be interrupted and respond the way that the Holy Spirit was leading him to respond. And so he's passing through. He has itinerary. He has a change of plans. And some of us are okay with changes of plans, and some of us aren't. How many of you guys have a hard time when your day doesn't go the way you planned? Okay, some of us just roll with it. Uh, Some of us, it sets us all off kilter. But Jesus was willing uh, to look at this as an opportunity and not just an interruption. So this man, Zacchaeus, comes into the scene, into the story, and he, it says he was a chief tax collector. Jericho was well, known, uh, was well known for being this toll place in Palestine for goods passing through to the west. And a tax collector basically meant that he was a traitor. The Jews were God's chosen people who were suffering and oppressed under Roman authority and Roman rule, but they believed that they were God's chosen people. And so it didn't make sense for them that they were living in this oppressed state. And Caesar was, we just talked about this, the whole book of Revelation that we just studied, uh, that Caesar was saying that he was Lord, and yet the, the Jews believed that there was one God. And they were thinking, what is going on? Why does it seem like God is losing? And so the people were trying to figure out, how do we live in this Roman uh, empire and be God's people. And so some people stayed the course, but other people decided, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. The tax collectors were a group of Jewish people that decided to join the enemy forces, the Roman Empire, uh, to, because they were the side that was winning. And so for the other Jews, they were seen as traitors. You turned your back on God, you turned your back on God's people. 
Tax collectors were Jews that had decided to work for the enemy. And the Rome, Rome didn't care how much money you made. They just cared that the appropriate taxes got paid. But if tax collectors charged more than they needed to, that was totally on them. And so tax collectors had a habit of charging more than they actually needed to for Roman taxes, and this is how they got wealthy and they got rich. And the fact that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector meant that Zacchaeus was actually at the top of this pyramid scheme. He was the leader of tax collectors. And so not only, only was he a traitor, he was leading this movement of traitors. Not only was he getting rich, and this is why it refers to him as also being wealthy, uh, he was taxing his own people wrongly, overtaxing them, and then he was getting wealthy off of their taxes and off of the other tax collectors that were collecting taxes from them. And so you can only imagine the reaction of the neighbors and their friends and the relatives and the rest of the, the Jews as they looked at Zacchaeus' house and it got more and more uh, beautiful, as it expanded and got bigger, as they saw the car that he was driving, the clothes that he was wearing. Uh, they didn't have cars back then. They, uh, but they just saw his life, quality of life, getting better and better and better, while their quality of life was getting less and less and less, and they were struggling. There was an injustice to it, because they knew that the reason that Zacchaeus' life was changing this way because of how they were unjustly taxed and the money that was being taken from them. It says, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree, fig tree, to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Um, so he was short, and this is an interesting uh, point in the, in the story, uh, and I don't know exactly why this is included in the story, obviously because he couldn't see Jesus, but I also wonder, have you ever heard the term short man syndrome? No? Anybody? Anybody ever met somebody with short man syndrome? Anybody in the room have short man syndrome? <laughs> no hands go up. Uh, so it, it's, it's a type of phrase that we usually talk about when, when somebody feels insecure in their life. And so because they're insecure, they, they overcomp, they, they over, um, do it on another area of their life. Um, and so their insecurity kind of breeds this, uh, this power trip. And so Zacchaeus, not only was he short, I think in the story we could see that he had somewhat of a short man syndrome, that he was making up for insecurity, that he was living uh, some kind of life of fear, and that, that was what was driving him to work for the traitors, uh, the Roman Empire, to be part of the traitors. And so there's a story going on in Zacchaeus' backstory that we, have, we know nothing about. Um, I love one of Mark Batterson's quotes. He said, one of his, his life uh, mottos is the belief that everyone is fighting a battle that I know nothing about. And Mark Batterson says this, this understanding, this belief actually allows him to have a radical posture of grace and mercy and hospitality towards other people because he believes that even though uh, this is what we see, that there's always a battle behind what we see that somebody else is fighting that we know nothing about. And so there's a backstory to Zacchaeus that we're, we're not let in on, but we see kind of the symptoms of that story. We see the short man that was overcompensating, that was taxing his own people. We can only guess as to the reasons why he would do that. And so he climbs the sycamore tree, which is interesting because sycamore trees actually weren't allowed to be grown within the city walls. They were used to, as shade. They were allowed to grow outside of the city walls, and they were typically used as shade for people that were unclean 
or unwelcome inside of the city. The outcasts would typically be found gathering around the shade of sycamore trees outside of cities at the time. And so remember that Jesus is passing through on his way out of the city. And so already at this point of the city, the story, we see that Jesus probably gone through Jericho. Uh, Zacchaeus ran ahead because he knew the pathway that, Je- that Jesus was going to take. And he goes outside of the city walls, climbs a sycamore tree. And it's, it's symbolic that this outcast in the Jewish community is now in the, air, in the place of the outcast at the sycamore tree. And Jesus goes to the outcast at that tree and he says, I see you. I see you. So Jesus is coming through that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. You know, first, when I was reading this story this week, I was like, where is Jesus' emotional intelligence? He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. That's not something we, like, in our time and culture right now, we are rarely inviting people over to our house, never mind imposing and inviting yourself over to somebody else's house. And so Jesus is here inviting himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner, which is a significant thing, not only today, but even more so back then. Because when you ate a meal with somebody, uh, it was... It, was, it communicated something about the intimacy of that relationship. You did not eat meals with people that weren't your friends. So Jesus breaks through this boundary. He breaks through this boundary, and this made people upset, as we see in the story. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus is excommunicated. He's not considered a Jew anymore. He's a traitor. There's these boundary markers that Jesus is breaking. And in every culture, meals are, as what the anthropologist Mary Douglas says, called meals are boundary markers. They bring people together or they keep people apart. We eat our meals with people that are like us, that think like us, that do life like us. That's the type of people we have over for meals. And so Jesus is eating and having fellowship with this traitor. He's breaking a boundary. And Jesus showed that he was an equal opportunist in terms of guests for dinner because uh, the chapter before, Jesus is also at a Pharisee's house having a meal with a Pharisee who would have been enemies of the tax collectors. And so he's not, uh, he's not discriminating against anybody. He's having meals with all sorts of people and he's making everybody mad and angry because of his ministry of hospitality. The Pharisees believed that every, if every person would just obey and follow the Torah for one day alone, the kingdom of God would come. And what that meant is they had this, this fervent, passionate belief and commitment to the laws and the Bible and just thought, if everybody would just follow the laws of the Bible, then God would show up. So that means having no Gentiles in your home was part of following the law, which would have been following the Torah, the Old Testament law. And if you think cancel culture today is bad, it was worse then. Jesus was in the process of being canceled. He was about to get canceled because Jesus was hanging out with the wrong crowd. For Jesus, meals were a sign of God's kingdom advancing. Hospitality wasn't a way of keeping people out. It was the scandalous way of inviting people in. And in the Gospel of Luke, it's fascinating, but if you read the Gospel of Luke from the lens of hospitality and meals, Jesus is either always going to a meal or at a meal or on his way to a meal. The guy likes to eat. 
But there's a profound ministry of hospitality, of unreasonable hospitality in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's leaving a meal. Jesus lived in a culture where a lot of people were hostile towards him. And how did he walk those people into the kingdom of God? How did he do it? Well, he did it one meal at a time. So people weren't understanding this. People were upset with Jesus. They thought Jesus was on their side, and then he goes has a meal with their enemy, and he's making enemies all the way around because of his unreasonable hospitality. And then it says, but Zacchaeus stood up. And the text had to say this because when Zacchaeus stood up, nobody was sure if he was standing. So just so you know, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of, an- cheated anybody out of anything... I will pay back four times the amount. What a transformation. Zacchaeus has this encounter with Jesus. He gives half to the poor, and he repays four times what he took. This is the restitution commanded in the law in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 22. It's the most extreme restitution that is demanded or commanded. And so Zacchaeus applies the law into its most extreme to himself. Zacchaeus seems to have accepted the harshest penalty of the law and applied it to himself. He's doing the maximum payment required in the Old Testament. And here's the thing. As a Jew, as he would have known this all along. He would have known the law. He would have had the information. He would have known what God was requiring of him. He would have been aware that he was living in disobedience and that his behavior wasn't acceptable to God. But that didn't make a lick of a difference up until this point in his life. So what changed? Why in this moment did Zacchaeus choose to transform and change his life? Because he had an encounter with Jesus. Because he experienced the unreasonable hospitality of Jesus. And here's an interesting thing. As Zacchaeus responds, after he stood up, he said, look, Lord, here, um, he calls Jesus Lord. And that's significant in and of itself, but if you compare it to the previous chapter in the book of Luke, Jesus had another encounter with a very rich, wealthy man who's referred to as the rich young ruler. And this rich man in Luke 18 comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, or actually he doesn't say Jesus, he says, teacher. He says, teacher, what must I do to be saved, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, well, you've got to follow all the, all the laws, commandments. And uh, the man says, I've done that. And then he said, well, sell everything and give it to the poor. And then this rich man, the text says that his face grew sad and he turned and walked away. And so in Luke 18, we have a wealthy man who encounters Jesus and he walks away and he's sad. In Luke 19, we have a wealthy man that encounters Jesus and he walks away and he's transformed and he gives what he has and repays uh, what he's taken four times the amount. And what's fascinating is the rich young ruler in Luke 18 calls Jesus teacher and Zacchaeus calls Jesus Lord. The rich young ruler simply saw Jesus as someone who was wise and had some nice things to say and wanted to add some of this wisdom into his life. Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus where he doesn't see Jesus as a teacher but as his Lord and his master and it transforms the way he lives. The rich young ruler tried to add Jesus into his life but Zacchaeus let Jesus do a complete overhaul on his life. 
But the behavior and the belief changed for Zacchaeus in this moment of unreasonable, radical hospitality. Then Jesus says, said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the phrase, the Son of Man, only occurs twice in the whole book of Luke. The Son of Man refers twice. One scholar said that the one reference to the Son of Man is about Jesus' mission. The other reference is about his method. And so we see here the mission of Jesus to seek and save the lost. And the other time the Son of Man reference comes is Luke 7. And it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus' mission was to seek and save the lost. Part of Jesus' method to do that was actually hospitality, creating space at the table for people to belong, to have an encounter with Jesus. So much so that he was accused of eating and drinking with the enemy. So unreasonable hospitality is a part of the method that Jesus brings the kingdom of God. The entire ministry of Jesus can be summarized, I think, in the phrase, divine hospitality to the stranger and the sinner. I forget where I read that, but it's not my quote. Uh, But one of the scholars said, this is the phrase that categorizes or summarizes the ministry of Jesus, divine hospitality to the stranger and the sinner. And the term that I'm using, unreasonable hospitality, uh, is actually taken from a, a book that I read recently by Will Gadara. It's not a faith book. It's a, a guy who owns a restaurant. Uh, in fact, it's the, it was ranked the number one restaurant in the world. Uh, and it talks about the process of how they did that journey over a decade of becoming the number one restaurant in the world. And they were number 50 on the list, uh, which was a big achievement uh, to make it to the top 50 in that list. And they got to being the top 50 restaurant in the world because they were excellent at what they did. But he said, we needed something that would set us apart. And so he wrote down on a napkin at that award ceremony where they were number 50 out of 50. Um, he said, we got to get the number one. And how are we going to do that? And he wrote down unreasonable hospitality. And so they made that their mission to be a restaurant uh, that practiced unreasonable hospitality. And it started changing everything the way they did everything. And he tells a number of stories in the book uh, but one of my favorite stories is he was at a table or walking by a table and he heard, uh, so it's a very fancy restaurant in New York, and he heard a couple saying, you know, we've done everything we wanted to do in New York, but the one thing we never got was that New York-style hot dog. And he heard it, and then he ran outside, and he knew there was this uh, hot dog vendor a block away, and he bought a New York-style hot dog. He brought it to his uh, his, his world-class chef, and he said, can you plate this? And the guy's like, are you serious? And he's like, he's like yeah, I'm serious. And so... Uh, he takes the, the hot dog and he brings it to the table of the couple that's sitting there and he's like, now, you, now you've got everything that you wanted in New York. And the couple was just blown away. Um, there's story after story about this, uh, about how the people in the restaurant are actually listening to the stories around them, take, listening to cues of what it might mean to go over and above and be unreasonably hospitable to the people Because one of the driving beliefs that he talks about in the book uh, came from a quote from Maya Angelou, which says, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Unreasonable hospitality was a major method for Jesus in breaking down barriers and giving people a place to belong. 
And yes, over time, their beliefs would change, their behaviors would change, but it first started with an encounter with Jesus. And two reasons I wanted to talk about this topic this morning. First one uh, is as we think about the COVID years, that we can refer to them now, uh, we experienced a great level of isolation. We stopped having people over. We stopped going to over at other people's houses. We read a text like this, and I might not have thought of anything of Jesus inviting himself over a few years ago, but now I read that, I'm like, can you imagine? Um, if I came to you after the service and said, hey, Bob, I'm coming to your house for dinner, uh, that would be like offensive, right? But uh, part of the reason is that we've lived in a world of isolation for so long, and some of us are moving out of it better than others. Uh, but this not only had a devastating effect on our mental health because we're created for community, it also had a devastating effect on the key strategy that Jesus uses for breaking down barriers, which was eating together. And so part of this is just an encouragement for us as individuals to remember the mission, the method to the mission. If our mission is to guide all people into a lifelong authentic relationship with Jesus, part of that method is actually just practicing unreasonable hospitality and eating meals with people, giving them a place to belong, not just the people that are your friends, but people that you wouldn't normally associate yourself with or your friends wouldn't associate your, themselves with. And if we do three meals a day, that's 21 meals a week, uh, what would happen if we reclaimed one of those meals just as a, a missional, kingdom-focused meal and say, there's one meal out of these 21 meals a week that we're going to say, this is a meal that we're going to give the Lord to say, hey God, who do you want us to invite over? Maybe don't go as far as inviting yourself over yet, but let's start with inviting somebody over and saying, let's practice as a community on reasonable hospitality in an individual way. I think we have to intentionally move towards that because we've unintentionally probably lost that in our culture. You know, I've had so many meetings with people over the last couple of years, and uh, I would say 99% of those meetings are happening in restaurants or coffee shops, uh, and very rarely have I met people in their homes anymore. Uh, and there's something profound that happens when we meet together in our homes. The second reason that I want to talk about it is because, as you know, uh, we have our Stampede Breakfast next week. We're having company over. Uh, and I wanted to talk about unreasonable host hospitality because when we gather together next week and we want you to come, uh, some of you are serving and volunteering, and there's still places for you to volunteer if you want to uh, volunteer. Uh, but even if you're just coming... If you're just going to come at 9 o'clock for the Stampede Breakfast, my hope and my prayer is that we would come not with the mentality of being served, but to serve. That we would come not with the mentality of, hey, I hope I get to come to Stampede Breakfast and see my friends. We are going to have a couple of thousand, couple of thousand people on our property next week. There's no pastor on staff who's going to be able to connect with a couple thousand people. There's no greeting team that's going to be able to connect with a couple thousand people. We have people coming onto a property that are fighting battles that we know nothing about, that are waiting to be seen, waiting to be heard. And you might think, well, it's just a stampede breakfast. How much can actually happen in a stampede breakfast? They might not remember how great or poor the pancakes were. They might not remember the country songs, uh, but they'll remember how you made them feel, and I believe that's true. What, happened, what would happen if we showed up collectively as a church onto our property next week to serve Stampede Breakfast and we took it as our mission, recognizing the Stampede Breakfast is a method 
to engage with people in unreasonable hospitality, to see people, to ask them about their lives, to hear their stories, to bless them, to encourage them. What would happen if people left our property next week feeling like, I don't ever know if I've been seen or heard that way in a long time? I think we have the opportunity, unique opportunity, one time a year, where people that would never darken the door of a church step onto our property and they have all sorts of different perceptions about what the church is like. And we have the opportunity to show them that there's a God that sees them, there's a God that hears them, there's a God that loves them. And it might be in some kind of insignificant conversation that you think is insignificant, but it might be the first time that someone's actually taken the time to hear them and to see them. And so my challenge for us as a community is for us to, as we have an open house, to practice unreasonable hospitality, to come in next week not with the intent of just connecting with my friends. Your friends will be there after the Sunday's over. With our ears open, our eyes open, praying to God, saying, God, would you give me an opportunity to practice unreasonable hospitality? Would you give me an opportunity to break down some barriers? Is there someone who's not seen that you're inviting me to see this morning? Usually when we close a service, we, res- we have a time of response, and that looks like a worship song. Uh, today, the worship team is going to help us respond, but they're not going to help us respond by leading us in a song. They're going to help us respond because they're going to be at the back doors. And on your way out, uh, they're going to give you three handouts. And between now and next Sunday, I would invite you to pray and consider and ask God, ask the Holy Spirit to highlight for you, Lord, who are three people that you want me to invite to the Stampede Breakfast next week? Who are three people you want me to invite to the Stampede Breakfast next week? And don't just pick your friends who are probably likely coming. Pick somebody that you're like, man, this would be, uh, this would be boundary-breaking if they showed up and say, I'm inviting you to this. Would you take the challenge and invite somebody to the Stampede Breakfast next weekend. And then when you show up, would you come with a missional mindset, asking the Lord to highlight for you who he wants you to connect with and to share his unreasonable hospitality with. So I'm going to pray. And then um, there's going to be prayer teams at the avail- available at the end of service like we do every Sunday. If you'd want prayer for anything, we'd love to pray for you. Uh, but as we conclude the service and you head out, I would invite you to grab three of these. And we're looking forward to just blessing the socks off of people next Sunday as we have a party together. Uh, but we come with a missional focus of unreasonable hospitality because we believe that when people encounter Jesus, that's actually what leads to behavior uh, change and, uh, and life change. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your uh, ministry of hospitality that, uh, because that means that we have a place at the table. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that you've seen us and that you've invited us. Lord, if there's anyone that, here that hasn't even responded uh, to that invitation to sit at your table, Lord, may they do that and hear you calling them home this morning. Lord, we thank you that you invite us to be your partners in mission and that we have an opportunity to be hosts. Lord, we thank you you showed us what it meant to be a host that doesn't discriminate but sees every single person. Lord, we want to be your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your voice, your presence. So Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for next week to serve, to love. Lord, that you would highlight for us specific individuals to invite. Um, 
And Lord, that next week when people come, that those who are unseen, that those who feel lost in the shuffle of life, that those who are fighting a battle that we know nothing about would have an encounter with your people that would start the change of their story, the change of their trajectory, that they might know you as a personal Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So thank you for coming. Again, this prayer team's available. Please grab a few of these on your way out the door, and we will see you next week as we uh, have our stampede breakfast together. Thank you.